Welcome to the Highland Southern Baptist Podcast. Each week, Keith Perrin will deliver a Holy Spirit-inspired message. If you have a Bible, you can read along with us. Our mission is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ from Hillsboro, Missouri to the rest of the world. Now, here's Pastor Keith. If you would get your Bibles open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Resurrection was uh, something that was uh, hotly contested at the time that uh, this was written. Uh, during the time of Jesus Christ's life, it was something that was hotly contested too. Um, you had the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and of course, you've all heard the story. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection, and the Sadducees did not. That's why they were so sad, you see. Um, the, uh, the Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not. They were a very... Um, suspicious individuals, the, the uh, Sadducees were. Um, then when you get into the Greco-Roman side of things, for an individual to, to basically say that there was a God that offered something that was greater than another God could, could find themselves in trouble with the other God. So resurrection was not something in the Greco-Roman pantheism, polytheism, uh, was also not a very popular um concept and was difficult for individuals who had that background in their life as as um, Greeks or Romans, they found it very difficult to believe uh, in the resurrection as well. So, I mean, just how important is it that somebody catches on to the fact that the resurrection is something that's real? Well, it's, it's vital to an individual's faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no beating of death for us as individuals either. Um, salvation's impossible if it wasn't for the sacrifice. Um, the resurrection is, uh, was the result of the sacrifice and wasn't just the result for Jesus, um, alone, but was also the result, uh, that re- result was also for us very specifically. Um, so he is, um, the Apostle Paul is doing everything he can to get people to understand what the resurrection is and why the resurrection is a fact. Um, of course, just like I said a while ago, I mean, in order for you to, in order for you to get somebody to, uh, choose heaven, you, they've got to be convinced that there's a hell. In order for you to get somebody to choose life, you have to be convinced that there is such a thing as death. There's, um, there is the extreme importance of individuals who are going to go into this relationship with Jesus Christ that they not only have faith in, but they genuinely believe to the core of their, their being that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that he did what he said that he was going to do, and he did it for the reason that he said that he was going to do it. Um, so in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, start with verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you also, also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of, as of first importance that I also received, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So this is really, if you notice, this sounds very much like a testimony. Sounds very much like the Apostle Paul um, is basically saying, this is who I am, this is how I got here, and this is why I'm here. So it's interesting that his focus on this entire chapter is the resurrection, but he calls in the first verse, he calls the he, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, the gospel has to remain intact. It has to be complete. The gospel message is not uh, the message I, I, I was potentially going to preach this morning was about uh, the living, breathing word of God and the fact that Christianity is its more than something we do. It's something that we are. It's not an act that we carry out externally. It's an act that is always cultured and and. Um, manufactured internally. Uh, in other words, for anybody who ever do anything good, you have to have the desire to do so. Before anybody can really be, I mean, it's a loaded term anymore. To be a Christian. What does it take to be a Christian? Does saying you're a Christian make you a Christian? Does go to church make you be a Christian? The gospel is intact. We are who we are because Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross in our place, rose from the grave three days later, and beating death, he beat it not only for him but for us. That is the complete gospel. Now what if I told you that everything about Christianity was accurate, that everything about Christianity all the way up to the point of the resurrection, you don't get to live forever. How much does it change the outcome of the gospel? How much does it change in your interest? If I was to say, yeah, you can have Jesus as long as you're alive here, but when you're dead, you're dead. It's, it's gone. There is nothing beyond this point. How would you feel about Christianity at that point? It becomes less valuable, right? It be, it, in reality, it be, and it's okay. It's not sacrilegious for me to stand up here and say, and to say that, because the fact is, God gave us the gospel the way that he gave it so that it could be productive in the lives of people. He loves us. He wants more for us. He wants better for us. So he's extended that to us in the form of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is taking credit away from himself in these first 11 verses. He's completely taken, because, I mean, even in the part where it sounded like a brag, he was talking about Jesus showed himself to all these people, and then he showed himself uh, to the apostles, and then as one untimely born, he showed himself to me too. And then he talks about the fact that he does more than any of the other apostles do. And then he goes, but not that I'm doing those things, but the grace of God working in me is doing those things. So it wasn't a statement of pride. It was a state, 
it was a statement of humility. And what he said about the apostles wasn't a dig. It was, it was, if, if we was to take that particular point of time, look at all of the apostles, look at everything that was going on at that time, churches being planted in places, it would be pretty easy to be able to turn around and say, okay, if I had to visibly see the gospel at work, what would it produce? Well, it would produce apostles. It would produce a Paul on top of the apostles. It would produce churches, institutions that were established by Jesus Christ. Do you think the will of man has the ability to accomplish all of those things, even at the beginning of this, the get-go? No, the answer to that is no. There's no way. How many of you guys in here are willing to die for a lie? Peter, crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to hang the same way that Jesus Christ did. You think Peter believed that this was all a hoax? Paul, beheaded. Do you think when they put his, when they, when they physically, this is real stuff, folks, this isn't, and I realize this is a little gory, but the facts are the facts. There really was a man by the name of Paul. He really was leaned over a beheading block, and he really was decapitated for Christ. This was a real human being. You think he would have done that for a lie? John, boiled in oil. All they had to do was deny it. All they had to do was say that it wasn't true. But nobody ever did come forward and say that it wasn't true. Twelve apostles, eleven martyred, one boiled in oil and survived. Something in this was worth dying for. Verse 12 says, Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even, uh, we are even fond to, to uh, I'm sorry, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm getting it from both of you guys. I got the one side that's criticizing me because I'm actually saying that the resurrection is real, and I had the other side who have twisted what it is that I believe, who are over there screaming that that I believe the resurrection isn't real. So Paul's basically saying, all of you people are saying things that are contrary to the truth, and it's confusing individuals. Now, <clears throat> one of the interesting things about th- these particular verses, uh, in verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why are we of all men most to be pitied if we believe this? Fact. Being a Christian's hard. Now, it's not hard just because you're a Christian. I didn't say somebody who's called a Christian, life is hard. I said for someone who is being a Christian, it is hard. And there is a pretty broad spance in there in the world we live in today 
as to what a belief in Christianity entails. There are people who place their trust in Jesus Christ, don't lift a finger their entire life, don't do anything for the cause of the kingdom, don't do anything for the cause of Christ. All they want is heaven. If they can get it by the skin of their teeth, they're fine with that. All the way to the other end of the spectrum where people believe that the more that they do, the bigger their mansion is going to be. Every human being falls somewhere between those two points. Do you think that we as Christians have been somewhat desensitized to the miracles? Yeah. I mean, how easy for how easy is it for us to just let a man who died rose from the grave roll off of our tongue without really making the connection to our brain? Is this a miracle? Would you just consider it a miracle? Was it a normal miracle? An average miracle? I mean, we're talking about something that has absolutely gone contrary to all that we know is natural. If it wasn't for the story of Jesus Christ or the story of Lazarus, what other context would you hear a true story where somebody actually died and came back to life? And I asked you a while ago, just how valuable would this Christianity be if you didn't have the promise of eternal life? Because it was structured this way, pay now, okay? In other words, we're going to get criticized, we're going to get persecuted. If we're Christians, who those who, who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a statement, it's a fact, it's a command, it, it, it is... It's just what it is. If someone who is genuinely a Christian is genuinely acting out Christianity in their life, if they're walking in that Christianity, this world is not going to be nice to us. It's just not. If the world is being nice to us, then we need to start asking the question, am I actually being the Christian God called me to be? Now, don't get me wrong. We're not people who are supposed to be trying to cause problems but just know that when the gospel, when the gospel truth that we believe is spoken, it's going to cause problems. Morality being pushed forward when immorality is trying to be exalted or lifted up, those things have to be done. Yeah, I've made some mistakes on some of the ways that I phrased some things when I was responding to things on Facebook. I have. When I see myself getting bitter and start seeing that that my mind's going to that place, I detach myself. I don't go to Facebook for a while anymore. Because it is frustrating. It's maddening. For somebody who works in ministry, I'm here to tell you that it's, it's absolutely maddening. So absolutely. If that we believe that Christianity in this life is all that there is, we deserve to be pitied. Above all, we deserve to be pitied. Because otherwise we're sh short-sighted. We're not paying attention to the big picture. And we get locked in those spots, too, where we become so isolated because of the things that are going on in our own lives that we completely shut down to the things that are going on outside of that. When the fact is, God didn't call us as a church just to pay electric bills. And he, he didn't call us as a church just to have a building sit on a piece of property. He's called us to be individuals who have 
the knowledge, the understanding, and the ability to be able to let people know that this in this life, we have been instructed to pay. Be obedient. Live the life that Christ has called us into. Walk. I think it's my lapel. I'm going to have to order a new wire. For us to walk as individuals who are believers in Jesus Christ and to actually have this be what is the motivator in our life, it's just not what is happening in the country today. People who are Christians... I mean, how many times does the scripture honestly tell us being a Christian is being a Christian and we're supposed to walk in it? I don't want to throw any numbers out because I don't know how they would even get a real accurate statistic. But I even wonder when I walk around in the world today how many people who say they're Christians really are Christians. Because again, saying that a person's a Christian, that doesn't do it. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these are people who are part of the church in Corinth, individuals who have placed their trust in Jesus. Some of them have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, but since they stuck to the side of the Sadducees, the belief system of the Sadducees, they didn't believe a a resurrection was happening. So Paul's like, are you thinking about what it is you're saying? So you're going to live this life down here, an alien in a foreign land, literally not fitting in if you're being faithful and obedient to Jesus Christ, And this is it? When you take your last breath, it's over? You just don't exist anymore? I would like to say, everything that I do is out of love. And I think to some extent that's probably true. But some things are done out of responsibility. Right? We all, you know what I mean by that. There's the things that you're expected to do that you got to get done that may be a little less spiritually applied than some other things you may end up doing as as, uh, individuals in this fallen world. Folks, it comes down to this. Am I looking forward to the day where I will spend the rest of eternity without any influence of sin? Am I going to miss dealing with people's problems? No. Um, I want you to hear me when I say this and hear me correctly. And... And I'll I'll explain to you why this isn't necessarily a wrong way to look at it. I say necessarily because anybody could twist anything into anything. When we as individuals find ourselves in the most difficult situations in life, whether it's financial trouble or it's uh, health problems or it could be really anything, we find ourselves in those spots. What's the one thing that Jesus Christ continues to instruct us to do in order for us to stay sane? Hope. Hope. 
Now, hope, biblical hope's not the same as earthly hope. You know, I, I, I hope that it will be warm during the harvest party. That's an earthly hope. Biblical hope is the anxious anticipation of a promise fulfilled. And Jesus is always pointing us towards that hope because when we find ourselves as aliens in a foreign land struggling through the difficulties that come along with this world, Jesus wants us to keep our eyes on the kingdom. He wants us to keep our eyes on the thing that is immovable, the thing that will be there, the thing that cannot be removed, the thing that brings the fulfillment of all of the promises that have been made to us. He wants us to look to that. Without the resurrection, where's the value in that? There is none. Without the resurrection, what does it, what does it say about all of our loved ones who have gone on before us? I honestly don't know how non-believers do it. I don't know how, how non-believers go to a funeral. Could you even imagine you having a core belief that heaven wasn't there? That it wasn't an option? Just how much would it change your emotional state if that were true? So Paul's telling these people, you guys have apparently no idea what it is that you're saying when you say that Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead. Verse 20 says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, I'm sorry, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So theologically, we can get into that really deep. It's pretty simply saying that Adam, the first man, brought sin into the world. Jesus, the first son of man, brought the solution to the penalty of that sin. Okay? Verse 23 says, But to each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are in Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, who he has abolished, who, who, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Paul's pointing out here that they have removed the Father from the picture. If somebody doesn't believe in the resurrection, they have removed the Father from the picture. Jesus Christ was sent here to accomplish something. If Jesus Christ came down here to beat death, the resurrection was an absolute. It had to happen. And it had to happen above all else because that's the plan that God put in place for it to happen. 
This isn't the first time the resurrection's ever happened, but we know some of the confusion. If you look in the gospel according to John chapter 11, that story that I use a lot during, during funeral services, um, in that passage of scripture where Lazarus dies, the resurrection was something that would have been considered um, huge. Amen? But... The structure is the father gives the plan. The son didn't argue with it. He accepted the responsibility and he carried out everything that was required for that plan to be fulfilled. The ultimate fulfillment of that plan was the end result of us being where? How can they even call us an alien in a foreign land if there's nowhere to go after this? The fact that verse 23 says each in his own order means what? It means there's an order. Well, if there's an order, who had to put the order in place? God put the order in place. The scripture repeatedly tells us, speaks of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you remember in that gospel, in that message, or that passage of scripture in the gospel according to John chapter 11, when Mary, or when Martha, ran out to meet Jesus, and Jesus said, your brother shall rise again, you remember what, what Martha's response was? I know he'll rise again on the last day. Even her being someone who was who believed in the resurrection, was confused about the resurrection, thought that when a person passed away that they were put into a grave and they stayed there until the day that Jesus came back for his church. We know this was a misconception because of the thief that hung on Jesus' left. The one who he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the confusion about the resurrection, the necessity of the resurrection, these things are pretty obvious when it comes to um, everything that we know about the faith. Verse 29 says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? By the way, verse 29, don't get thrown off by that. There's no way that anybody can be physically baptized for someone who has already passed away. Can't happen. But what this is saying, though, is there were individuals who could not be baptized. Okay? Let me ask you something. What are you before you come to know Jesus Christ? Are you alive or dead? You're dead. So being baptized for the dead, he's not talking about here like, I won't name the denomination, but there's a couple of denominations that, that actually say that if somebody had passed away and wasn't a believer, you could actually have a family member substitute to be baptized in that person's place. That is not what that verse is saying. Being baptized for the dead were individuals who uh, could not be baptized. They were too ill to be baptized. They were so somebody else would actually be baptized in their place. And he's not saying that that's right, wrong, or indifferent. What he's saying is, is if the resurrection isn't real, why would somebody go through what they had to go through to be baptized for somebody?
It's one of those, if I'm not thirsty, why do I go to the sink and fill up a glass of water? Of course I'm thirsty, if I believe that to be the case. He says in 31, I protest, brethren. I protest by... Hold on, I lost my place. I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I could preach an entire sermon on verse 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Anybody in here ever been peer pressured to do anything you didn't want to? That's happened to you, raise your hand. Peer pressure is pretty powerful, right? And you know, it's easier for us as individuals to do what is wrong if we're in a group of people who are doing what's wrong. It's easier for us to believe what a group of people believe, or at least pretend to. I've been through the whole peer pressure thing. It's, it's pretty easy to set aside the Christian and to get ourselves caught up in other people's immoral thoughts and actions. It's pretty simple for that to happen. Now, Corinth was full of these people who were running around speaking things that were completely untrue when it came to the resurrection. If I walk up to somebody, or if I meet a new, let's put it in this context, because I probably, you know, I, I spend a little bit of time with pastors in the association. There was a pastor in the association that came forward and said that there was no such thing as a virgin birth. Should I make that person a buddy, have Bible study meetings with? meet them for lunch, talk at long, long lengths. Because I'll tell you something, if somebody believes, if somebody really believes something so simply um, guaranteed through the scripture, hell and heaven are real, that I, I don't even know where to go to try to even convince somebody, because apparently they didn't use the Bible at all when it came to them drawing that conclusion. The Bible speaks very clearly about a heaven, speaks very clearly about a hell, they exist. But if an individual can't grasp something so elementary as the virgin birth, then what else do you think that they may have twisted? I guarantee you just about everything else that has any substance to it at all. How many of you and I'm, I'm stepping out on a little bit of a dangerous spot here, so I hope that you can appreciate that. How many of you have ever been asked a question about the Bible? You answer that question, and then somebody says, where did you get that answer from? And they say, my mom told me. My dad told me. My grandparents told me. And I'm not saying that all mom, dads, and grandparents are wrong when it comes to the things they're talking about in the Bible. But I'm here to tell you, with 32 years of ministry, there are a whole lot of parents out there telling their kids things that are not right when it comes to the Bible. What's the point? 
why do we do what we do? I mean, do we really believe there's a heaven? And do we really believe that there are human beings on this earth who are not going to make it there? Do we believe there's a hell? That it's real? And there are going to be people on this earth, fire that cannot be quenched, place the worm dies not, it's a non-consuming fire. Do we really believe, really believe, that it doesn't matter whether someone is a believer in Jesus Christ or someone is not, that the resurrection is real? Do we really believe that? Because I could pluck any human being off the street. And I could tell the churches of the world, in two days, we're going to burn this man alive. If there was anything in your power, how far would you go to stop it? There are some interesting statistics when it comes to this stuff. Did you know that 85% of the people will turn away from a conflict in the street because they don't want to get involved? Because they don't feel like it's any other business? I feel like that Christians that we're putting out today in the world are that type of Christians. I want salvation. I want to be able to reap all of the benefits that come along with Christianity, but I don't want to be that person who's out there putting myself in those spots. There's a, reason, there's a reason that the Apostle Paul had mentioned that the demons believe and they shudder. Does Satan believe in Jesus? But what value was it to him? None. It was no value to him. The demons, what value is it to them? They believe. Jesus walked up to a demon-possessed man and the demon couldn't keep its mouth shut. What are you to do with me, son of man? They know Jesus. How valuable is it that you know Jesus? If Satan knows him and the demons know him, how valuable is it to know Jesus? How valuable is it to believe in Jesus knowing that the demons and Satan does too? Is it the belief? that's valuable? Or does it have to be taken to a level of trust that actually invokes action? Because we will be what we believe. It's a fact. The one thing, 32 years of ministry, the one thing that has always been the most difficult is death. Always, hands down. If we believe that hell is real, and by believe, I'm using that word trust, do we know that it's real? If we do, and we're people who withhold the gospel, what does that make us? I mean, are we very good people if we really believe that that's real and we do nothing to snatch anybody from it? 
what are we if we believe that it's real and we do nothing to detour people away from that end? Yet, 97% of the church in the United States doesn't do it. I'm afraid of the number. I wonder it, but I'm afraid of it. How many people who claim to be Christians really are? And what breaks my heart more is this is just like a Pharisee situation where Jesus said, you find a, you find a convert and then you turn them into twice the son of hell that you are. Did you know that people who are really lost that think that they're saved are the hardest people in the world to convert? They think they're fine. They think they're fine because they walked to the front of a church, repeated a prayer to a preacher, and was dunked in a tub. They believe they're fine. Without the resurrection, we're nothing. Not to mention, we really are pulling more uh, mortality and immortality completely out of the picture. You've heard me use the analogy before that we always want to make sure that everything's going fine, that everything's good. Those trips mom and dad used to take to Corning, Arkansas, it'd take them two and a half hours to get home if dad drove fast, three hours if he drove the speed limit. You think we kept the house clean all weekend? You think we wanted mom to think we kept the house clean all weekend? So a lot of times we counted on grandma. For a while, she was actually in on it with us. Hey, grandma, we need a heads up when mom and dad's coming home, so you be sure and call us when they pull out. Because then we know we got two and a half, three hours to cram together a, a nice, clean house before mom shows up. Ever been there? I get the feeling that that's what Christians are doing. We know God's coming. Be nice if he gives us a heads up. We're not sure, though. I mean, he could come back today, but chances are he's not going to come back today. What happens when the divine appointment time comes? And I call it a divine appointment because nobody will be late or miss that one. Do we really believe that one day we'll stand before him? I'm not talking about believing. I'm talking about really believing. I'm, I'm talking about to the extent of it actually changing the way that we conduct life. <clears throat> That's one thing I found interesting. If my mom and dad never came home, when do you think the house would be cleaned? It'd be on a program of hoarders in a very short amount of time. Because it's not going to happen. And if I was to say today, the church in the United States, is it actually conducting itself in such a way as it's producing based on the level of belief that Jesus is coming back for his church? Let me maybe try to rephrase that a little simpler. 
do you see the church functioning in such a way that Jesus could be, be here anytime? No. Doesn't. Sure, there are a few people who live their lives that way. I mean, there are some people who live their lives that way. But as far as the, the church itself in the United States, it is not living that way. Do you know the number of believers in the, in the, uh, in the country are sliding? And then when you look at the statistics by age group, it is completely flooring. Back when I first started in youth ministry, 95% in the United States, 95% of the people believed the God of the Bible was real. Not 95% trusted in him, they believed that he was real. Today, 32 years later, 80% of the people in the United States believe that the God of the Bible is real. 80%. Guess what percentage of people between the ages of 19 and 30 believe that God is real? 22%. 22%. So what's coming? Can anybody tell me what's coming? In the next potentially even four or five years? Because a lot of these people are already voting. A lot of these people are already going to their school boards and demanding changes. A lot of these people are becoming state representatives. A lot of these people are becoming judges. This isn't a slide that's just happened over the last 32 years. This is a slide that's been going on since the day that God created this planet. But the church church is supposed to be able to stand outside of the box and look in because we have been given all of the information of all history past and of everything coming in the future. He has told us everything we need to know. So we should be individuals who have the ability to look, function, work outside of the hubbub and to be able to recognize things. Things like... Do you guys know there's a bill in play right now to, uh, to create an electronic currency? They're actually trying to pass the law to have a recognized electronic currency inside the United States. Does that raise your eyebrows? It should. You know why? Central banking is an absolute fact when it comes to a one-world monetized system. It's a fact when it comes to everything that God's told us about the end. What has, to ap- what has to happen in order for money to become globally monetized? Well, the U.S. dollar's got to go. Because you can't take the dollar and the yen and the peso. And you can't take all of these different kinds of money and then be universally activated across the globe. You can't do that. We need one that whether you use it in the United States or you use it in China, it's going to work. And the only way that you can do this is to eliminate currency and put it in an electronic form. Why do my eyebrows raise? Because once it becomes electronic, they've created the scenario that is perfect for the mark of the beast. It can't happen right now the way the money is right now. Because we have paper money, we have coins, those things still have value. As long as those things still have value, then people are going to be able to operate even through the black market. But if it goes electronic 
and you have the system watching you and watching every purchase you make, which, by the way, you also know that that's something they're trying now, too. If you have over $600 put into your bank or taken out of the bank, the federal government wants to know what you spent it on. Why? Are they just nosy? Or do you think this is part of a bigger scheme? With the government, I can tell you, it's a universal answer. It's always involved in a bigger scheme. When a politician shows you his right hand, look in his left one. You know, I tell politicians lying, don't you? Lips are moving. I know we have some good politicians out there. But the fact is, politicians aren't the ones who are responsible to share the gospel with the lost and dying world. I believe that every decision that we make, yeah, it can speed up the time, slow it down. It's not changing it as far as God knows, because he knows everything, and he knows when all this is going to come about. But the fact is, the world's going to continue to be on this downward slide. It's going to continue to get worse and worse. It's not supposed to change the church. Now, it is changing the church. And it's obviously because the world has invaded it. But not everybody who is a part of the church is really part of the church. The church? The church should be living its life like there is a resurrection. It should be hoping in all things regardless of the circumstances. It should be providing peace and comfort to people. It's exactly what it was intended to do. How much do we see the peace and comfort of Jesus Christ in the world we live in today? It's not the world's responsibility to show it. It's ours. If you're here today, you've never followed through on believer's baptism, you've never professed Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, today's the day of salvation. You can do it over the phone, we can do it on the opposite ends of the church, or we can sit on the same pew, whatever you're comfortable with. But if you're here today and you're a believer, I want you to think about this. If our faith in Christ was as real as the things that are tangible in our lives, how much different would our faith be? How, how much different would it display itself? If God was as real as a spouse or a grandchild, if there was a physical form that you could see and touch, would there be more validity given to God at that point? the living, breathing Word of God. He really is that real, and He really is that tangible. But the church isn't living like He is. Heaven's real, hell's real. The church in the United States isn't really living like it is. The resurrection's a fact. Apart from it, we're all lost. With it, we have all hope. But I also see the church in the world not living like it has all hope. There are disconnects, folks. 
those disconnects have to be removed. Is God real? For answer to that question is yes, then our lives ought to have his fingerprints all over it. Thank you for joining us today. If you have questions about becoming a Christian, prayer requests, or just want to say hello, you can reach us at facebook.com forward slash Highland Southern BC. We hope that this message was encouraging to all of our listeners. Have a blessed week.